Kawa. It's Zach Langley Chichi. I'm so popular. Uh, recently, all sorts of fun things have been happening on the podcast. We talked about Amuro Namie and her career recently in a sprawling five hour episode only for Patreons. And most recently, my first ever instrumental episode came out, so give that a listen. But today, I have one of my favorite returning guests to go through a very important topic as we get closer to the end of this season of I'm So Popular and begin making the final preparations for my reformulation of the world. Today we are talking about the notion of utopia with the uh, book Utopia by Thomas More, Bjork's album Utopia, and of course Zardos, one of my favorite films I've seen recently. But who are you? I'm Vera. Thank you for inviting me onto this episode. Very different topic than last time. (laughs) Completely different, but I feel like the wonderful conversation we had last time was... um, it's like so arcadian and made me feel like so full of like joy and uh when i listened back to it i really just imagined like us sitting in a beautiful ps2 like green garden with like some final fantasy six level graphics uh it felt really uh beautiful and arcadian to me so of course i had to bring you on for what I think is honestly a very important episode this is some important stuff that we must get out of the way before the world is remade Absolutely. I um, excite. I'm excited to see what season four has in store. Um, so season three is wrapping up. How many episodes do you have left? We have this one, and then there's a, a two-part episode after that, and then I believe one more proper episode before everything must be rearranged. So we're looking at about I think four more. Oh boy. And has this season cleared up some of your questions about reorienting and rearranging the universe? Well, it has absolutely restructured my thoughts about it. I remember when I was kind of preparing like the thematic idea of like what I wanted to do this season and how I was going to do it. I felt like very like militaristic and like ready to go, which is why I talked about futurism so early and I don't know, I felt really, like, sparked up and passionate about taking everything in my own hands and remaking it with clay. And as time has gone on, we've gone through some of the things like Mein Kampf and all of these discourses on utopia, I think my feelings are quite different than they were a year ago. Yeah. I... This is an interesting topic because I think, like, utopia, the work utopia was so monumental and it's really insane to um, get into the weeds of the text and realize how some things never change and (laughs) for better or for worse, certain concepts are like everlasting in people's attempts to like social engineer and try to create heaven on earth and fail. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I'm thinking about as well, because I suppose the idea of like how I'm going to, you know, be recreating the world is uh, 100% a pursuit of, 
utopia. And when I was reading Mein Kampf with Jack, I found one of the most, like, obnoxious and disgusting parts of the text was, like, how shrill and boring he is and how ghastly his idea of recreating the world was in the first place. And it made me so despondent against, like, that... Nietzschean idea of actualizing yourself so hard that you can change reality in some way, because it led to a total—I mean, the actual hellscape of the of like the fucking apocalyptic holocaust. But beyond that, it was deeply uncompelling and boring. And then when you look at uh, what we're talking about today, it just seems like that notion sours and spoils, like all the way back in the fucking 1500s. It's like. This idea seems a little foolish the deeper I get into it. Utopia, The Communist Manifesto, and Mein Kampf are the same book. (gasps) Yes, they are. That's exactly correct. They're the same book from the same impulse with many of the same principles and desires outlined in their text. And... um, what I found so shocking about Utopia was just how communist it was. I mean, Thomas More was the first communist. Yes. And he was actually a pro, he actually was a profound influence on Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. And um, so, yeah, that does not speak well of Catholicism. No. So, to introduce Thomas More, this might be the oldest thing I've ever talked about on my show. It was uh, published in 1516 in Latin. And Thomas More is perhaps one of the most unhinged Catholic, like, zealots in history, like, ever. Mm -hmm. He was born in, like, the late 15th century, and he spent his entire life being a pain in everyone's ass. Uh, He studied law um, in order to become a politician, but was... Uh, uniquely hated by everyone around him who found him to be deeply obnoxious and incapable of, like, just letting things pass. And so he was a major thorn in the side of everyone around him. He wore a hair shirt. Are you familiar with this concept? Yes, because um, Catholics believe that the flesh is sinful, so you wear a hair shirt to uh, be itchy and uncomfortable all the time yes so he did that he also flagellated himself every friday that makes sense and uh he used a log as a pillow he slept with his head on a fucking log well well that (laughs) makes sense it makes sense you know um yeah the Thomas More, I was vaguely aware of his place in history. I knew of him as um, a staunchly, violently anti-Protestant figure who um, ultimately got executed for refusing to acknowledge the Church of England Mm -hmm. when Henry VIII created a whole church because he wanted to get divorced, um, which is kind of a sleigh, I think. Absolutely. Um, but I didn't actually know about the book Utopia, which is crazy to me, um, because 
like I said, it was clearly immensely influential. Uh, it will it created this entire new canon within like Western literature, which is like utopian uh, speculative fiction. Mm -hmm. You know, like and, and this genre I think includes everything from Brave New World to Avatar. Utopia is like literally Avatar. Absolutely, <laughs> it's exactly like that. It is monumentally important. The book actually originates the phrase utopia. This is the first time it's uh, ever used. And it's funny because what a like fundamental part of like our linguistic thinking in the 21st century. Like, I don't know about you, but it seems that between politics and human worldviews, utopian thought is never more than an arm's length away. It seems that mm -hmm. every initiative and drive that's taken within politics and human relationships is driving towards creating heaven on earth. And it's very bizarre and uncomfortable that that kind of thinking seems to be this deeply embedded seed that he put in the ground with this really wild little book. Absolutely. And it's fundamentally uh, delusional and it's mm. fundamentally um, incapable of being actualized. Oh, absolutely. And I think that is central to the appeal of utopian thinking is that it's a masturbatory exercise that is perpetual edging with no climax and that is what appeals to people about it they don't want their they don't want a climax they don't want it to actually become real and i think this is very true of thomas more because what i found interesting about utopia is that you get into the weeds of what the utopians these fictional people do and what they believe and a lot of it the good parts um are things that protestants put forth mm -hmm. yet thomas more violently persecuted protestants and railed against them and saw them uh he was right about this as a threat against the power of the catholic church and against his power uh and it's funny because it's like here are these people who are trying to actualize a lot of the ideas that he put forth in utopia just one year before martin luther nailed his little rant um <laughs> and uh you know it's just funny because i feel like part of it is is a resentment toward people who dared to actually do what he just thought you know and you see that still play out all the time with various utopian thinking absolutely it really seems to me that the entire point of utopian thinking is like you said this masturbatory edging but a deliberate refrain from actually attempting to physicalize any of the concepts that you make which is why communism is such a pain in the ass for everyone is because most communists i think do not actually believe in any sort of revolution they do not believe in the climax of actually bringing that kind of society to earth and they deliberately murder each other and persecute each other into the deepest wells of bizarre overwrought philosophical debate specifically with the practice of them not having to do anything to like make a change this has been plaguing the communist movement for all of history and like you can look at literally any like 
revolutionary army, like the Japanese Red Army in here in Japan that just like killed all of themselves with the deliberate idea of making sure that these things that they pretend that they want aren't ever going to happen. It's like an infantilizing dreamscape that they create for themselves in these worlds. And that's the basis of utopian practice. Absolutely. They don't, they don't want it. Um, they know it's fake. And that's what is appealing to them about it is just the cyclical, you know, mental masturbation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, it's the Marvel yeah, Cinematic so Universe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's their fandom thing. Um, and like, the actual book Utopia is interesting. Mm -hmm. I don't know which version you read. Um, I read well, the one that's on Project period. Gutenberg. So it had the initial epistle, and then the second book that had the, um, the, the actual discourse on Utopia. Did it have a letter from Ralph Robinson? Yes, it did. Okay, yes, because mine had, like, the whole nine yards with the with an intro by some academic that is long and says very little <laughs> in a lot of words. And then Ralph Robinson's letter, which I found really funny because of his apologetic tone and the way that he... Some things never change, like I said. He sounds like most academics these days where he's like, oh... Little old me, I don't know anything, but I just translated this from Latin for you, William Cecil. And, you know, um, I know that there's problematic stuff in this text, <laughs> but just like read it for the beautiful prose. And it's just, he's literally like checking his privilege and like flagellating and all this <laughs> stuff. Like he sounds like an academic. Yeah, absolutely. This is a really I, something I like about, like, 16th century and, like, earlier, like, fiction is that the novel doesn't really exist at this point. And so mm -hmm. the kind of um, story structures that we're used to and the idea of fiction as a concept is so unintroduced that it feels quite, like, alien and unwieldy when you're going through it. And it feels quite impossible, almost. It doesn't feel like this could have practically been written it feels like it like was discovered on like some stone wall like carved with a, a mallet or something yeah and it's unclear what's real and what isn't um and it's it's a frame story mm -hmm. you know so and and like more like includes real people in it but they're not it's not real and so it is actually interesting how um he kind of warps your perception of reality and yeah like this was a time where like published letters were like a thing that people read which like isn't uh doesn't really exist in that form now no now it's just um, podcasting yeah i guess people's sub stacks if anyone yeah reads that. <laughs> <laughs> but um so yeah there's the letter from ralph robinson then there's another letter and this is where like the fiction kind of starts and then there's the first book mm -hmm. which is the dialogue between the fictional more the fictional peter giles and then raphael hifloday who's like not a real person right i mean more is real and peter giles is real but like raphael hifloday is, is totally invented yeah 
And he's like an explorer with Amerigo Vespucci. Um, and he describes this wonderful, quote unquote, you know, island of utopia um, where everything is perfect. And um, the first book is kind of this like loose dialogue about what's wrong with Europe at the moment, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> It's not until the second book where they start getting into what is Utopia. I actually do like the first book quite a bit because it's so nebulous and weird. And I love the sheep fixation. So you get this like idea of England that it's just um, this uh, darkened continent that is poorly run by kings and overflowing with sheep everywhere that the populace doesn't know how to control. And so it just creates this uh, spiderweb vortex of problems it's very charming, but obviously yeah. the appeal of the of the whole book is this discourse on utopia, the second book. Um, the original, like, I think, editions from the late 16th century included uh, beautifully done uh, maps and these uh, cute little images of the... of this country, and it is... It looks like Australia. <laughs> it does. It looks exactly like Australia. I love Utopia. Like, I, like, I, this idea is so cute of him, like, just, like, sitting there, like, imagining things, making up little rules for it, drawing a little map. Um, I know, well, that's, he's Barbie Dreamhouse. <gasps> like, he's doing Barbie Dreamhouse. He's playing with his when dolls. When men do Barbie Dreamhouse, they call it philosophy. But, ah! like, it's literally, because at one point, he literally gets into the window tint that the Utopians have. We can get to that. I don't know. Like, the detail. <laughs> yeah, it is lavishly imagined um of course we're quite used to this now because so much speculative uh fiction and fantasy exists and game of thrones at one point was like the most important cultural touchstone in the country so everyone is constantly playing with barbies but seeing it happen mm -hmm. from this cute little 16th century obnoxious catholic who's just i'm gonna dream up the window tint is uh yeah yeah it's barbie house down boots <laughs> yeah Barbie makeover. Yeah, Barbie um, makeover of England. Let's make Utopia. Um, yeah, no, it, it is, like, really, um, really funny, the level of detail he gets into. And um, it's, you know, it's very Mein Kampf, like, getting mm -hmm. into, like, the diet and what people wear and what they should wear and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the... Um, Going back to the first book for one minute, I do think that the dialogue is interesting there mm -hmm. because this was a tumultuous period in Europe because the the merchant class was rising and feudalism was kind of starting to be on its way out. Right. You know, and so there's there's this tumult and there's this kind of push to, uh, you know, break from the shackles of like, the landed aristocracy and everything and so it is interesting to kind of think about that um and so you can kind of understand where this impulse comes from when you think about it in the feudalist context but when you get into book two like when he starts talking about the structure of the society um like all the cities are the same there is no private property everyone farms no one's ambitious uh it's very 
very, very communistic. And there seemed to be, you know, this kind of yearning for just like peasant life. Mm -hmm. But everyone's doing peasant life. (laughs) Yeah, it's the private property is probably the most important concept of the book because no one owns anything. You don't even own your house. You get shuffled between houses, I think, every 10 years. So you and your little family unit will be living for 10 years in your little house, and you'll get shuffled around. Whenever you need goods, supplies, or food, you have to file a little request at one of the little warehouses, and Mm -hmm. then you get what you need. Um, I was really disturbed by the descriptions of the clothes and how it was aspirational that no one dresses well and that there's no fashion or like well-dressed to be had and there's no gay people in utopia no there are no gay people in utopia there's no there's no glamour (laughs) (laughs) not allowed yeah and they're not covetous of gold either they just they use the gold to for the toilets and stuff you know like this completely nonsensical thing like people are going to use precious metal the toilet (laughs) yeah because the idea is that by using this gold that is like the communally owned like wealth of the nation of utopia they use it for chains for the slaves and for the toilets and for like like shit shovels it's wild yeah it's it's funny the kind of 12 year old boy like way that more kind of Clearly, he was like, oh, well, how do I account for this tendency that people have? And he was like, oh, well, we'll just make the gold, the toilets, you know, like, and it's just like, um, okay. <laughs> it's like hilarious because <laughs> it's just <laughs> so like naive. But he he um, wanted to be a monk at one point. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of the utopian societal structure is very similar to life in, in, in a, a monastery, monastery yeah and that is like essentially what most communists and like people who envision these very rigidly structured societies they're always they want some sort of lifelong daycare thing and like everyone's eating in a cafeteria and you never have privacy mm-hmm. and it's this kind of like uh monastery meets like school kind of thing and you'll hear contemporary communists be like you know kind of essentially express this idea of like why can't we always just be in school with supervision and schedules made for us and you know like they don't want to self-actualize mm-hmm. and be adults <laughs> i mean yeah when we talked about like foucault a few weeks ago one of the things that foucault talks a lot a lot about a lot in discipline and punish is like the prison of the schedule and like the regimented lifestyle that comes from being in a school place or being in an academic setting where you have everything decided for you and all of your actions are regimented by the all-seeing like panopticon of the schedule that makes you feel constantly uh, pictured and thus vulnerable and this open longing and desire for a life so structured that there's no room for any mistake or any like overflowing passion it's quite creepy and um weird i guess i would say to imagine someone 
looking straight into a completely boring life of no success, no excitement, just constant rule following in regiment and then getting excited and like worked up into a like a little 12 year old tizzy as you're playing with your dolls you're like oh look now he has to go and do his two years of work in the countryside as an agriculturalist and now he's going back so he can do his you know little work all day and now he goes home he's worked his six hours now he's done did more ever do Physical labor. I highly doubt it because he was constantly bugging all of his uh, associates in law all the time. So there's absolutely no way he had any time for agriculture. He was too busy killing Protestants and railing against Protestants. Precisely. But yeah, like that's a key thing though, is like it's always people who have never done that kind of labor who idealize it and they're like, wouldn't it be great if we all had to do this. I don't think any communist like, have ever no, met bitch. could like deal with the fucking chickens that I used to deal with when I lived on my little farm <laughs> with my parents. Those chickens, I resent them. There was one that I liked and the rest having to clean up their shit, get like pecked on by them and like feed them and keep their like living spaces clean, get their eggs in the morning. It made me so resentful of them. No one who actually mm-hmm. does any of this unless they're like really, you know, holistically passionate about that and they they care a lot about it no one loves it it's dreadful yeah and like what's so funny too is this utopian society that he um lays out uh there's all this free time there's all this like regimented free time but they don't do anything with it well he says oh they fill it with intellectual pursuits Mm -hmm. and i'm like they all do, you know, like, it's interesting, like, this society <laughs> of people who have these, like, fundamentally, like, European values of, like, rationality and, like, intellectual pursuits when they're not farming, you know, it's like, so this is basically Australia with people who all have, like, this specific kind of, like, lawyerly mindset and it's just it's interesting like it's interesting how he projects values of a certain like social class onto like a whole imaginary society Mm -hmm. and that is constantly what these kind of utopian thinkers do is that they're always thinking that like it will be possible but they don't account for like fundamental differences between like different groups of people, yeah. to put it mystically. <laughs> now, I had a um, really compelling lesbian professor at the University of Oregon, Anne Laskaya, who I love endlessly. And she was uh, focused on um, like this era of literature. And she also did like a lot of academic work in Chaucer, um, which was really fun to take that class with her when she would like read the Middle English to us in her <laughs> deeply spirited tone. And she made the argument to us that she believes that utopia is actually intentionally dystopic and is supposed to come across as not quite right. Because like you said, a lot of his values are more Protestant than Catholic, and um, he actively supports the fact that there's like eight religions on the island of like sun Mm -hmm. and moon worshippers, and the only people who are um, like, 
discriminated against are the atheists who they still like let live on the island. So she said that it was like kind of intentionally supposed to feel off and wrong. But what do you think about that? Yeah, I know there's a lot of contentious debate about what his intention was behind publishing mm -hmm. this. Like, is it all a joke or is it all serious? And I think that it's a little bit of both and that there is throughout this kind of snickering tone of like 12 year old boys, like in middle school, kind of joking with each other because like there was this back and forth between him and Erasmus and they both, it was very trendy at the time for like the intellectual class to study Greek. Mm. And so like Utopia, like he pulls from Greek and there's like all these kind of in jokes and stuff. But I think that he is earnestly presenting a lot of this stuff because he agrees with it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, especially at the very end, he goes like full blown Ellsworth Tui communist manifesto because <laughs> he's all like, oh, my goodness. I was like stunned. Um, yeah, jeez. He talks about the evil rich stealing the poor's money, like of course. Um, the rich men do every day pluck and snatch away from the poor some part of their daily living. Um, and then he's talking about the conspiracy of rich men procuring their own commodities under the name and title of the commonwealth. And then he personifies money as a woman and then says like evil money, lady money is, is seducing all these, uh, you know, men who would otherwise pursue the holy path of, you know, righteous living. And mm -hmm. like, I do think he believes in a lot of these things he's putting forth, you know, I think you have it precisely correct because the end of it, when he really like goes on this like long rant and starts like a, uh, he kind of like breaks character a little bit, and you're like realizing that it's not really like Raphael speaking, but that, like this is Thomas More because he's so boisterous with these ideas that they're just breaking free from him. He can't. I can imagine like his like quill trembling as he's like writing yeah, it. Like he's like getting a boner. Money. He's like lady money. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> can you imagine the kind of like hatred that this man must have had for women and all the frustration they probably sexually installed in him? Well, yeah, he's it's odd though because when you read about him, you can tell that there's all this like back and forth with like pro Thomas More people and anti Thomas More people because you try to read about his life and there's all these like conflicting things where they try to present him as like this progressive person who valued education for women and all this stuff and it, I don't really know what to believe because I feel like there's a lot of like bias going on and people are trying to rewrite history a certain way to fit certain narratives because it seems like leftists are fans of Thomas More because he was such a profound influence on Karl Marx. And I was really taken aback recently that because I, I mentioned to a friend of mine that I was reading Utopia and she was like, yeah, I read that. And he was so ahead of his time and it's astounding. When he, and I was kind of like, um, oh my God, well, like this this thing is nuts. I was like, wait, you think this is like good? And I was kind of shocked because it seems like a lot of people when they're taught utopia in school or whatever, 
they are it's framed very um favorably and kind of like he was the first uh you know he threw the first brick and that kind of (laughs) yeah i was very fortunate because professor laskaya is a being a lesbian is too smart for her own good to know that this is just a like a smiling you know round of applause and even though it was like kind of introduced to us, it's like, oh, this is like the first piece of like science fiction. It's like the first piece of speculative fiction. She was always like uh, not trying to let us think that this was anything good. And I can't, it is really indicative of how bleak mindsets are these days. If you would look at a society like Utopia and like mm-hmm. be like, mm, Yes, because even if you go th- for, like, the basic stuff that clearly doesn't work about it, there's, like, literally slaves on this island, and, like, mm-hmm. like oh, they're so well-treated. I'm like, okay, ha. And they also, what's that thing about where they rumple Stillskin the babies if there's, like, too many babies or too little babies? Oh, They'll yeah. Just, like, steal your child they make... and redistribute your children? It's so good. <laughs> if you, if there's too many babies, they, like, literally do, like, Mao Zedong to you and, like, relocate yeah. you to like colonies on the obscure islands and will only come fetch you when the island becomes underpopulated again like what the fuck who thinks this is a good idea china also very communist and very catholic is that there's no premarital sex and violations are punished by death that's right and adulterers become slaves oh. so like yeah you get fucking killed if you have premarital sex I cannot, oh my god, this is just so wild to me. Very, very Catholic. Maybe the reason that this book does, like, uh, kind of sit well with people is because there is, like, a general, like, Catholic era of self-flagellation and endless ruling of yourself for um, obnoxious uh, imaginary morals that do no one any good. That is a very appealing safety net for babies who are afraid of true experience. So I can understand why that Catholic sentiment would, you know, do well to appeal to people these days. Well, yeah, it's a horseshoe. My strongest political belief is just that the horseshoe theory is right. Because, like, (laughs) the extreme right and the extreme left are the same because they're both puritanical... um, sex panic crusaders and the no premarital sex thing i think would be fine with a lot of the communists today you know like the the puritanical route they're on seems to just lead straight to um being a thomas more catholic so if i was on the island of utopia i would definitely probably like willingly um, commit adultery so I could be a slave, and then I would uh, try to enact like a revolution of being like the sad white slave who could. You'd be the Spartacus of the Utopian slave. That's right. I'm yeah. I'm gonna liberate Utopia with a gay sex panic. <laughs> <laughs> Can the slaves have sex? That wasn't really made. No, they leave that one up to the imagination. But even though they're chained up in the gold chains or whatever, um, they are treated very nicely. And even though it's mostly. Um, foreigners and uh like war uh losers i wouldn't mind if i was like chained up in gold in some japanese household here just for being like a foreigner you know it doesn't seem like the worst thing in the world (laughs) i mean you're in gold that sounds a little more glamorous than the rest of it i get to shit in my gold pot 
Yeah. <laughs> doesn't sound that bad, but no. Um, the other one of the other like little things I thought was amusing was the description of the relationships between married couples. Mm-hmm. And uh, the women have to report their sins not to a preacher, but to their husband. What kind yeah. of relationship is that? That sounds very um, like Puritan, like pilgrim settler kind of vibes. Like mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and yeah, because in the religion section, he discusses the New Year uh traditions and he mentioned something about like the women confess their sins to their husbands and then the children confess their sins to the adults and then everyone's like purged of their sins for the new year and yeah that's like a recurring theme and who do the husbands profess their sins to i think it's left out yeah i don't know Hmm. i wonder if that was like a thing in his marriage probably (laughs) oh good lord i find uh, overall, Utopia is a very... It's worth a read. It's not too long, to be honest, and uh, the language is, is quite penetrable. I don't think it is... Uh, for a book of its time, it's it's quite readable, I think. Yeah, I had the Ralph Robinson translation, and um, I thought, it, yeah, it was fine. <laughs> it's it's fine, and I think it's it's well worth a read because it, whether on purpose or not, illustrates a very bizarre inclination that exists within utopian thinking and it's something that we have to consider as we get into the rest of today's topics here huh absolutely yeah it's definitely worth reading um you know along with like plato's republic utopia kind of creates a whole genre that we will never be rid of i guess (laughs) Produced entirely by herself and everyone's favorite, Arca. It was released in on Thanksgiving of 2017, and it made a big impression on me when I first listened to it. Uh, I got really high in my parents' house. Um, I used my mom's bong, and I got like really high. And then I put my computer up in front of me and read it with the liner notes as I listened with earbuds. And this is without a doubt, one of the most obnoxious, frustrating, 
egotistical, ecofeminist nightmares that has ever been actualized. Um, originally, I wanted to cover it with uh, Intercourse by Andrea Dworkin with ContraPoints, but she ghosted me, so fuck you too, bitch. Now we're now I'm going to rip into this nasty little worldview. It is a 72-minute flute-based concept album um, about a, a island in the sky of only women who gather together to ease their traumas and re-engage in a sexual world of uh, Tinder and anal sex and um, suing your your ex-husband. It is... I can't say this enough. It's so fucking weird and obnoxious, and it's so committed to its little worldview, like Thomas More, that um, despite the fact that if I were to live in this society she imagines here, I would be you know, horrified and probably, like, pushed off the island in the sky to, like, drown in the ocean below. I do still love and respect it, but I'm sure you have some interesting thoughts about this album. Well, (laughs) I, first of all, I didn't know this interesting uh, women's commune concept. I wasn't aware of that. Um, That makes a lot of sense because yes this is this is very dworkin um and you know i want to say first of all before i make (laughs) everyone in south america hate me um that i am a bjork moderate i actually (laughs) like every bjork album until biophilia because Biophilia is awful. York uh, fell fell from the sky into the swamp and never left, and she's still there. Oh yes. And I was intrigued when I was reading up on Utopia because I noticed that she was quoted saying that she was ambivalent about the title. And that she had gone back and forth about what to call this album. And I think a more appropriate name would have been Swamp. Because (laughs) that's what it makes me feel. It makes me feel like I'm in a South American jungle. And I'm trudging through mud and muck and sludge. And quicksand. And... There's no escape, and there's nasty bugs flying around, and there's creatures on the periphery. That's what it felt like to listen to this album. It was physically taxing. Um, Every song, every song was a funeral dirge. I love it. Oh, this is exactly the reaction I hope you'd have. (laughs) It is wildly unpleasant, and like I said, I love it. In my opinion... This might be my favorite Bjork album, to be quite honest. And <laughs> I okay, I know at the moment it's very in vogue to uh, kind of uh, reject her for her recent output because let's be honest, that most recent album for Sora is really fucked up. The first time I listened to it, I was like, okay, I kind of get it, and now I'm like, oh, that is just really not okay. I don't accept it. Um, the mushroom. Oh, the mushroom. <laughs> 
The bitch is trying to be towed from Mario. Oh my and God. I'm supposed to think that this is high art. No, I don't. I'm supposed to be impressed. I'm not okay. impressed. It's really unpleasant. I'm. It's very obnoxious. This is um kind of a, a two-album project, Utopia is, because it, it follows a Vonacura, uh, which is her breakup with Matthew Barney album. Now... This, uh, their, their relationship gave them a child together, Isadora, and it went on for a very long time. It kind of uh, put Bjork in the art scene in a way that she hadn't been taken very seriously. Um, she'd been kind of, like, fringe and for gay people after post because she became such a nightmare about her own artistic impulses that she became completely abstracted and unpleasant for anyone but herself and the gay people who felt too strongly about her, like me. And so Matthew Barney kind of gave her that stamp of approval, put her in Drawing Restraint 9, and I have no doubt she must have been the worst life partner in the world, constantly thinking too much about herself, intellectualizing everything to the umpteenth degree, and the idea of him cheating on her and breaking up the relationship and not fucking her anymore is very easy to picture, um, but then what she does, of course, is she has to intellectualize it in a very un-Japanese way. No Japanese artist would ever dare to do something like this in the way she did it. And she goes on, quite frankly, a hysterical two-album rampage about the death of her relationship. And Utopia is supposed to be the sunny, um, bird song, abstract flute healing of the of the wounds of her heart as she retreats into the female grotto and everything you said about it being swampy and covered in bugs is quite literally present on the album because it has those synthetic squeaking bird noises do you know what i'm talking about yes um (laughs) that's a little touch from that horrible four-letter word (laughs) And throughout this album are these abrasive, discordant, cacophonous bird noises. Bird noises. <laughs> it's the birds. It is Hitchcock's <laughs> The Birds. I'm Tippy Hedren and my eyes being poked out. Oh my God. And it's just like some songs could have been okay ish, but then there are those fucking birds. <laughs> And it's just like, she was quoted saying something about this. So the birds actually are being sampled from a 1973 ornithologist recording. Um, And she says that this album of bird noises in Venezuela, Venezuela, by the way, um, is one of her favorite albums. So... (laughs) Sure. She is so intolerable. I think what Jack said about her was that she does not spark joy is really true because this album is so muddy and not pleasant. Um, All of the songs go on way too fucking long. Um, Most of them are like six minutes plus. And there is a 10 minute song in this album that never ends. And it um, wow, it is so... Okay, can I, 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 to contextualize my love for this album, imagine Bjork, who is being 
she's staring straight up her own vulva. Like, she cannot unplug her head from her pussy. And it's her and Arca, like, masturbating together, thinking about how life is going to be so beautiful on the utopian island in the sky with all of these birds. And they are so thoroughly convinced they cannot be dissuaded that they create this indulgent pageant of by completely by accident it reveals like the horrors of utopian thinking absolutely and like you can just tell that this is the product of people who are so far up their own assholes that they cannot see the light and i mean bjork has talent i really love um I love debut. Mm-hmm. I love homogenic. I love post. I even like, you know, everything up until biophilia, like I said. Mm-hmm. And I think all is full of love is incredible. Mm. I mean, I the first time I saw that music video, I was actually moved to tears by the robot sex. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think she at that time was looking to the heavens was looking toward the future she was unafraid to embrace the cyborg she was like had this kind of futurist impulse you know and she was partnering with like the right creative people and then she just came crashing down to earth like i said and then you know arca just is the absolute worst person to indulge her worst impulses Mm -hmm. you know like i mean i didn't really know much about arca before this Uh you know but then i I looked at the album on apple music and every single song says featuring arca and i was like okay i need to like know what arca is Uh and so then i like listened to an arca song and I was like, well, yeah. Okay, I will that- I will make my final statement on Arca because I'm sure everyone is dying to know what I think about her. But I um, was introduced to her from Yeezus because she produced uh, quite a few songs um, or, like, her contributions were used on it. And so that's how I got into her. And at the time, she was an obnoxious gay guy who was thinking too much about anal, which, I mean, who hasn't? Like, any gay guy is, like had to contemplate what it means that sexuality is achieved inside the rectum where death lies. And it was very touching for me to hear, like, these experimental gloopy songs when I was, like, 17-year-old about the horror and triumph of the asshole. And I thought it was very touching. Um, I think Mutant by Arca is one of my favorite electronic music albums ever made. It is massive and enormous and scary, um, there's a song on it called, like, Faggot, and it's all, you know, quite on the nose. But then after that, she started singing. She released her first album, it was self-titled, where she does this unbearable opera getup, um, and then starts putting herself way too much in the visuals. Um, she has a video of her wearing assless chaps and horse hooves, where she's bleeding out of her own asshole. And at this point, it's too much. Because the point of, you know, like, uh, like IDM, right? Like intelligent dance music. The idea is that the lack of lyrics and makes it more conceptual and so that you have more room to insert your own personal emotionality into it. 
But as soon as she started getting into that Chthonian mode of not being able to think about anything but herself, that's when she became non-binary. That's when she started doing like boom da boom da boom da like that really obnoxious like South American pop music thing. And mm-hmm. it has gotten more deranged with every album, and it all got a lot worse after she transitioned. So we're mm-hmm. now stuck in this. And when she collaborated with Bjork on this album, Bjork always talks about me and Dona Arca always had such a beautiful professional relationship, and she did he make my heart sing. And I'm like, oh god, you can really see how their worst impulses did an epic team-up and collaborated into this mess. Yes. Yeah, I, I'll have to listen to Arca's earlier You don't. Stuff. You can skip it. Like, I want to forget about her. I want her to get off the runway. No one cast her. We're going to forget about her old music. We're just going to delete it. <laughs> We're going to call it. Just delete it. Yeah. Um, I... I kind of lost my train of thought there but um yeah this a lot of this album is very uh sandpaper like mm-hmm. in its kind of abrasiveness i do and, love um, um these songs about her getting back into dating um when she's like first experimenting with tinder for the first time in her life and she sings he turned me down i then downturned another who then downturned her the paralyzing juice of rejection, his veins full of lead. He's left with loving what he lost more than what he has. Will we stop seeing what unites us, but only what differs? The ghosts of old loves hovering around his orifices. His orifices. I get that. It's... <laughs> like... Some of the sentiment I just think could have been better packaged. And part of my issue with this album is that um, I think kind of starting around Biophilia, mm-hmm. but especially here, Bjork starts to sing in one style yes. where she's just like trudging through the funeral dirge. And it's like, like, I mean, because I, it, oh. I had to force myself to listen to this damn album and it took me days because like I couldn't get through more than like two songs at a time and they all just bled together for me. And it's part of it is because her delivery and the composition are so similar mm-hmm. and it's just this kind of like trudging through monotonous kind of thing. Um, and some of the lyrics were funny. I, I can't remember which song it was, but she's like, the patriarchy, blah, blah, oh, blah. Oh, yeah. She like is like literally <laughs> singing about like patriarchy and the way that you got it exactly right how she sings, just that one note and, the, and she just like, yeah. it's so grating. Um, and yeah. yeah, you said it's like sandpaper and she's applying it to these just utterly bizarre narcissistic ideas. Um, like, okay, let's talk about Sue Me. Yeah. This song was written about her, you know, Matthew Barney, like, pressing charges for, like, parenting rights to their daughter. And it just has her for about six minutes going, screaming, sue me, sue me, sue me all you want. And I'm like, what the fuck are you doing, girl? This is so messy. 
Yeah, I'm looking at the lyrics now. Yeah. Sue me, sue me, sue me all you want. I won't denounce our origin. Sue me, sue me, sue me, sue me, sue me, sue me. Oh my goodness. Sue me, sue me, sue me, sue me all you want. Sue me, sue me, sue me. Okay, that's inappropriate, but like... The last word, uh the last word of the song is... Narcissistic. Narcissistic. (laughs) It's so good. Because this is exactly like the uncanny effect that I love about this album is that like... Okay, she's imagined this feminine paradise where she's like laying around in the alien plants with like her girls and they're all like fixed up with their clits and everything's fine and these like delightful little birds are on them and yet she's imagined this perfect utopian society and yet she still can't look further past herself than to write a six-minute song like raging at her ex like yeah how is it utopia like that's what i'm saying about this title of utopia and this idea that this is a utopian women's commune in the heavens Mm -hmm. uh why is so much of it bitter i mean it's actually it's really funny to think about it that way because it's like yeah this is like literally the women's communes of the 1970s where they were like we're gonna be in our matriarchy living our women lifestyle women with a y and then all they did was like complain about men it was like a lot and it's just like what's the point of this you know it's it's funny how that actually is kind of reflective of the reality of the kind of women separatist uh movement but um yeah no matter how much because to be honest, I like get some of the sentiment of this album, which is like, okay, in order to create paradise, you have to like lean into physicality. Like you have to embrace the carnal and kind of disregard society. Like she writes, uh, then my body memory kicks in, all bosoms and embraces, oral, anal entrances, like enjoy the satisfaction. Um, she also writes, all trapped in legal harness, Kafka-esque, farce-like patriarchy girl like i love the idea of like trying to like push past systems by like thinking too much about your asshole but like you said this uh utopia she's trying to dream of is so uh chained to her own ego as is thomas moore's utopia like it's so entrenched in their own worldview that they can't actually ever create it and it's just a ludicrous nebulous fantasy that they'll never be able to physicalize and clearly she hasn't because she's still singing about that fucking breakup she's still in the swamp and now she's a mushroom but like (laughs) oh my god that i've noticed about bjork um i guess for years now is that she um purposefully makes herself look hideous Mm -hmm. and so she's like rejecting any sort of sexuality by dolling herself up Mm -hmm. in south american parade wear feathers Mm -hmm. and mushroom this and that and she's just like turning herself into just like a complete joke um the cover of this album album it's ugly is uh yeah that tells you i mean it's her with this ugly what looks like some sort of orchid you know it's like the freakiest reproductive structures of a flower stuck on her face 
She's holding a flute really, like, menacingly. Holding a flute. Yes. Like, and then there's this weird little fetus thing curled up by her neck. I mean, you know, she, like, if we're talking about embracing sexuality and all that stuff, then why are you covering yourself in sludge and muck and turning (laughs) yourself into a joke of a parade float so that little you know, South American homosexuals who apparently are never in school can just be like, mother, 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 mother. Bootsing. New York is her mom. Well, she is. That she's their mother because she has dolled herself up as a joke of a parade float, you know? You know, she has um, a person who's done all of her makeup for, I think, since, since this album, Utopia, is the most intolerable drag queen in history, Hungary, who is such a... Wait, Hungary? Hungary. Okay. <laughs> Look her up after, because what she does is she goes on Instagram, she does, like, these, like, weird avant-garde, like, faces, and then she just complains about drag race. That's all she does. And she said, this queen whipped me off. Every single episode she says, this queen stole my look. No one respects me. Everyone hates me. I'm Bjork's makeup artist. No one likes me. I'm annoying. Everyone hates me. Why would anyone like you, bitch? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You're you're a fucking annoying cow. Like, and once again, the collaborators that Bjork is, like, sucking into her Chthonian swamp are, like, the worst people in the world. Everyone is such a crazy narcissist, and they're all gathering together to hold hands and imagine this island in the sky. And when they do it, it magically shows just how like delusional and ridiculous and uncanny it is, and I love it for that. Yeah, I think it, it, it triumphs in a way um, as a work of delusional, utopian uh, kind of speculative fiction in, in a way. I, I, I can see that element. Um, and, you know... Like I said, Bjork has talent. I'm not a total, like, I'm not dismissive of her completely. Um, I just think that she's better than this. I think that she should embrace being an actual person <laughs> not uh, and not a parade float joke well, I mean, I think or a weird succubus. If you think about, like, um, Vespertine, right? When she was doing those mm-hmm. emotive videos for, like, pagan poetry and stuff where... She doesn't have any makeup on. Like, it's just, like, mm-hmm. her, like, bare face and, like, her tits are out and she's, like, uh, you know, sewn up with a bunch of, like, diamond, like, piercings and stuff. Like, that is, like, her being, like, truly, like, naked, both emotionally and, uh, like, physically. And it's, like, such a stark comparison to, like, the flouncy, like, European drag face as influenced by Arca in pursuit of Bird Island feminism. It's, like... The answer she had it all along is like it's like in stuff like you know vespertine and in stuff like homogenic and post that have that like naturalist sexuality that comes out of it without being like forced. But um, I do love, in the same way I love like Sally Rooney, like just women thinking far too much about uh, sex and then it like leading them into spiraling into creating hell on earth quote utopia unquotes nebulously floating above us in the sky.
to you, these chosen ones. You have been raised up from brutality. Kill the brutals who multiply, and our legion. This ends our your God. new life to poison the earth with a plague of men, as once it was. But the gun shoots death and purifies the earth of the filth of brutals. Go forth and kill. Zardars. about the final uh, piece in this puzzle as we are trying to understand how we deal with this utopian thinking that has honestly driven a lot of my show. I think that there is an answer to all of us, or all of it, in the 1974 film Zardos, uh, produced, written, and directed by John Borman, probably most famous for Deliverance, of all things. And it stars uh, Sean Connery and Charlotte Rampling. It takes place in a speculative uh, science fiction universe in the year 2293, where humanity is divided between uh, Eternals and Brutals. And the Brutals are uh, deeply masculine, sexual creatures that run about killing each other with guns and... Uh, fighting in the wasteland while the Eternals live 
everlasting lives um, inside of like a bubble society where they engage in mass uh, psychotic empathy. It's like a psychic empathy that they can feel with each other. Um, and the film is probably best known for the costume that Sean Connery wears uh, because he's wearing a red thong and red straps and big boots and nothing else. And so because of that... Yeah, that's right. And he's very hairy. Um, so this single image has cursed the movie forever because everyone is convinced that it's camp and it's like a joke and it's not funny. It's not a joke. It's not humorous. This is like actually one of the most like pressingly accurate like art films about society I've ever seen. It is so reactionary in ways that would never happen again. Even for 1974, a film that is like so ardently opposed to like feminist commune utopias like seems quite shocking and i really never want to hear anyone joke about this movie ever again because i think it's quite honestly like perfect yeah definitely i i had heard of zardoz before you talked to me about doing this episode and i'd always heard it in the context of boomer women um talking about how much they loved sean connery's outfit and how sexy they found him but they would always explain it kind of embarrassed like because like you know oh it's i know the movie's a joke but you know he always looked so good and they would kind of uh embarrassingly you know admit to liking the movie or whatever Mm -hmm. so i i i knew of it you know and i knew that he was wearing this kind of bizarre tunic thing and um but i never watched it and so I was really impressed by it, and I think that it's more relevant now than when it came out. And um, I was, I mean, I was laughing throughout the movie because of how accurate Mm -hmm. it was. Like, I was like, yes, like, this is so real. And um, the, yeah, there are so many, like, I took notes when I watched it because there were so many things that I wanted to to talk about with you. Um, When... Uh, when did you first see this movie? I saw it very recently for the first time. Um, they did a, re- a like a digital restoration of it, I think, in America, like maybe three or four years ago, and it finally made its way to Japan. So when I was like, um, just like looking through uh, like what movies were showing, I saw that they were playing it. I'm like, oh, that's really strange. So I took my ex boyfriend and I, and we went to go see it. And I was kind of expecting it to be like a trifle and be kind of um, you know like an, an amusing. Like touchstone of the 70s and like a weird idiosyncratic piece of science fiction art and then when i sat in that theater and watched it i was moved to tears um, at the end of the movie i audibly gasped in the way that you were laughing because i couldn't believe how accurate and prophetic it was and i was enraptured throughout and basically i, I watched it and then i immediately like got home and like watched it again like the next day because i had to think more about it and process it um, it's a little bit of a like a plot complicated movie. A lot of stuff is going on, and it's all very um, highfalutin, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Like people wouldn't really imagine that's the case, but it's like very philosophical and kind of like a hard to process all of like the moving pieces of it. But um, even when you isolate the elements down of like the central images, it's like all so real. Yeah. 
Well, it was taken seriously by the creators. It was taken seriously mm-hmm. by the actors, and it is very dense. I mean, there's plot, and you have to pay attention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you want to get the the whole movie, um, and it's it's a psychedelic, you know, utopian dystopian. 70s movie like it's just you know that's just like 70s movies just kind of were psychedelic like that Mm -hmm. you know and that's i think what is so impenetrable to people is that it's like not common to see that kind of thing in movies Mm -hmm. now and um it wasn't that uncommon at the time but um it, it it's hard to follow initially like you have to just be on the ride because you know they don't explain anything until like three-fourths of the way into the movie and so it just opens and there's this floating head of literally Karl Marx like it's literally the bust of Karl Marx like that's what it looks like yeah and I don't know if that was intentional or not but it is it was literally yeah so like the evil bust of Karl Marx is floating and Beethoven's 7th is blasting yes which i yeah we should talk about that cuz i i love the use of um that piece in this movie me too and i think it was perfect um it's the best use of it in a movie and um but <laughs> like because it's been a couple months now since I watched it, but um, the so Sean Connery is a brutal. He's a warrior. He's wearing his little tunic, and I know everyone jokes about the tunic, but when you look at warrior outfits um, from the past, they often were kind of scantily clad mm-hmm. because they were showing off their physique, and there was this kind of idea of like the virility shining through with showing off the body so i don't think the outfit's all that absurd because like i don't know you look at um greek and roman soldiers and they were also kind of like showing off physique as well so um i'm defending the tunic thong me too but (laughs) uh and then so he like winds up in the vortex right like he that's what it's called yeah. the the hippie the hippie transgender people who are all wearing like weird knitted outfits and they're all kind of asexual mm-hmm. um yeah because i thought that was very bjork utopia it is it really is and i think like the central like quote that kind of defines their philosophy is that this uh, zardo's figure of the Karl marx floating head um, it descends into the wastelands where all these brutals live, and then it spits guns out of its mouth all over <laughs> them, and it barks in this huge voice, the penis is evil. The penis shoots seeds and makes new life and poisons the earth with a plague of men as once it was, but the gun shoots death. So this idea is that all of these like you know brutals are like out fighting wars and are like this spat up like men of society and all of uh, the world's violent sexual like impulses are evil and confined to the wastelands but um, Sean Connery is able to sneak into the mouth of the Zardo's head he sneaks mm-hmm. into Karl Marx's mouth and then he arrives in the feminist utopia of the Eternals in the Vortex and like you said 
their society is literally Utopia by Bjork. It is exactly that. I'm sure Arca's there in that greenhouse. I mean, everyone <laughs> is some sort of asexual, transgender. Like, the haircuts are intentionally these kind of uh, agender mullet things. And the outfits are interesting because... Um, they look very similar to a lot of the cult outfits of the time. Like a, it was kind of giving me Rajneeshi vibes mm -hmm. and the palette as well. And so, you know, uh, they're intentionally stamping out sexuality for the most part. And sexuality is seen as bad and evil and they don't do that. And then this, you know viral figure pops up and just throws their whole society uh into chaos because he's not an asexual like tranny <laughs> person like, yeah he's like not like a weird okay what is that name of like kamala harris's like niece or something oh that 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 thing i don't <laughs> they dress like that thing does <laughs> yeah. like they like are dressed in like knit hell and the kind of ludicrousy in the costuming is so important and i'm glad you defended the the sex tunic that sean connery wears because like when you see his like big strapping body like covered in hair with that like huge like gay porn mustache and all of his flesh is just revealed and present in comparison to, like, the wafting knitwear of these feminist transgenders, it's, like, I mean, that image alone, like, speaks so much power to, like, the world we live in, which is nothing but sex police, thought police, and, like, transgender ARCA outfits. And when you put, like, a real, like, blistering, like, phallic male figure into it, like, you can just, like, see how... Um, bizarre and utopian society has become just in that image alone. Yeah, and like that was an intentional, intelligent choice. Yes. That it's not camp. It's made. not funny. People need to stop using the word camp, you know. Retire it. It's not what people think it is. I miss the days when only certain gay people knew what camp meant or used that word. Mm -hmm. Now, listen, it needs to be said, just because someone's gay doesn't mean they have good taste or are qualified to be. Most making... of them have horrible taste. Yeah, especially these days. So. Ice Spice and stuff? I don't, like, <laughs> what the fuck? Ice Spice is also, like, a freaky, like, vortex figure to me as well. Like, these yes. Doja Cat is up there as well. Like, they're all, like faux sexual like i showed my girlfriend ice spice and she said why is she wearing a helmet <laughs> <laughs> it's just yeah like this shit is just stupid it's just stupid oh, and that is why i like love the bold brash costuming um i also love like the 70s commune look of the vortex it's like like tree nightmare it's just is like like a, a quaint British greenhouse with lots of glass and green trees everywhere. And th everyone looks so absurd and like foppy. Like when they're like, mm -hmm. when they're like eating their like food as well. 
I mean, the vibe is immaculate. It feels like this is, like, the dream of uh, most people these days. This is their utopia for real. Yeah, and that's also why people deride this movie, because the uh, vortex is, like, what they want life to be like. It's very similar to Thomas More's utopia. It's the... Um, swamp of Bjork's utopia and so people like that and then they see this utopia depicted for what it really is and they see it fall apart and they are displeased by that and so they reject (laughs) the messages of the movie you know but um, I wish I'd seen this movie (laughs) years ago Uh, it would have been very valuable I think and more people should take it seriously but um the interesting thing that I thought uh, was really relevant was that there's this whole sect of people in the vortex who are like the apathetics mm-hmm. and they have the disease of apathy and they don't care about anything or believe in anything. And then like, they're the first people to riot. <laughs> it's just so real that how like people who like, don't actually care about anything will just like be destructive and i just thought that was hilarious and i think a lot of people now uh don't believe in anything and they'll pretend they do you know Mm -hmm. but you can tell it's funny well i mean i was thinking about this a little bit when i did like my episode about brett easton ellis and andrew holleran when they were like writing about youth and old age which is um Something that has vanished, I think, in the last, uh, like, 50 years or basically since we don't have war anymore in a meaningful way is, like, life is very idle for young people who no longer process, like, their youth and their strength and their power. Like, they kind of forsake it to an infinite childlike state of um, never going through, like, the harshness of uh, trauma or, like, actual, like, difficulty in their lives and so they like live in like the Uber Eats shrine of infinite childhood. And when you are never faced with the notion of death, like the immortals are in the vortex, it also puts you in that state when you have no danger or challenge or richness of complexity in your life. It, you know, negates your existence and turns you into one of the apathetics. And watching them just like, stand around in that like haunted barn is so creepy Mm -hmm. yeah it is it's also interesting how the other um kind of fringe sect within the vortex are the people who have been aged as punishment Mm -hmm. And so there's this idea that looking old and being old is bad. And I feel like that is a major problem today in America, which is that young people despise older people. Mm -hmm. They don't want anything to do with them. They don't want to learn from them. They think it's an age gap when someone's like five years older than them. They think they're being assaulted if someone five years older than them like flirts with them. They don't seem to have any grandparent presence. And so this idea that like being old, which normally corresponds with being wise and like having experience Uh that you can share with younger people, that that's bad, that's a punishment. I thought that was really funny and like really true of this 
swampy utopia thing you know totally the they basically condemn anyone who like betrays like the like thought police rules of the vortex um by aging them like you said and it's really like breathtaking watching them like come to the conclusion that someone must be aged and like make a consensus because it's total communist nightmare melt where they all like raise and their hands and start mentally like resonating with each other and they all like close their eyes and like start shaking as like they meld their brains into like one single entity so that they can universally condemn and cancel like those who do not agree with their social worldview yeah they have a witch hunt i think i took notes about that i remember that um there was yeah the scene where they have to like agree and it's like a parody of democracy or something mm-hmm. like i kind of vaguely re- like i remember finding that really funny and um they all i think they all have to be in agreement yeah and so yeah they all like so they have to be democratic and they all have to be in agreement so they all just like bully each other into agreeing <laughs> you know so it's like a parody of like how these things actually work, which is that, like, people are still intimidated Mm -hmm. into going along with it. Oh, it's brilliant. That scene when they, like, come to the conclusion and then, like, age the, one of the dissidents and they, like, all, like, put their, like, hands to his temple and he starts, like, seizing on top of the, on top of the table um, in that, like, quaint British greenhouse, like, foppy room is such a, like, powerful picture to me. And I, um... I just relate a little bit too strongly for, like, every time I've ever been, you know, attacked for what I believe and what I know to be true. I'm like, they're doing it to me, too. Yes. Ugh. Yeah, we're all being attacked by the Vortex people. The Vortex mm. people are everywhere. I can't believe this movie exists and, like, identified the Vortex people so efficiently yeah. in fucking 1974. Some of them even have, like, the Zoomer mullet. I know, they've got, like, those creepy zoomer curls and perms it's like disgusting i hate all of them um basically like the vortex is like led to revolution by like the presence of sean connery Um, there's a really beautiful scene when they're like analyzing his sexuality and like having a group study over him and uh, Mm -hmm. they present him with women who are all like horrified of him and then he gets a boner looking at charlotte rampling I was, like, obsessed with that, too. I love that. Well, what I thought was interesting about that scene is that they show him, like, porn, and he's not into it, but then he's into a real person. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was interesting. I'm not anti-pornography, but I do think there's something to be said about the current moment in America where a lot of Zoomers are only aroused by, like, really bizarre uh fetish things Mm -hmm. you know and then like an actual person actual sexuality actual sex is like uh repulsive to them and so this this brutal being aroused by actual flesh flesh and blood they're just like grossed out and freaked out and it seems like they would have been more um, accepting if he had been aroused by the pornography instead. Absolutely. And so I thought that was a nice touch. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think um, 
one of the most wild things about this movie is that it's like distantly pro rape. I wouldn't even say distantly. It just is like sexuality like must be like forced into the universe like is one of like the driving messages of like the of the film yeah it's sexuality is good and when you try to stamp it out bad things happen everyone becomes an apathetic and they're miserable Mm -hmm. and life you know can't exist and it's yeah it's an important message you know i mean Obviously, this movie um, was probably not taken well by feminists. Um, <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> I wonder why. But, you know, I, I think that it's, it is an important message. And I think that, like, human sexuality is just, like, necessary and natural. And the constant attempts at, like, stifling it and doing away with it completely that we see right now are obviously causing people to be miserable and it's causing like society to be malfunctioning. I know it's one of the things that's disturbed me the most about my cognizance of the last few years is watching like sexuality completely evaporate from young people. I mean, when I go to gay bars here, I feel like Japan is like, I've made this point many times over the course of my show. I feel like the sex culture is still like quite strong here, especially in comparison to America. But even still, like, these young guys, like, they're, like, 22, 23, and they, like, cannot fathom the world of sex, and they completely close it off 100%. It's such a, a brain disease, and then watching this movie where Sean Connery, like, fights with this, like, AI human intelligence, like, this crystal that basically is, like, the sum of all human knowledge, um, and he destroys it in order to give mortality back to the to the residents of the vortex and that he kills god he kills god like two times in this movie by the way wow yeah it's so good that scene when he finally is like in combat with the human consciousness and it's all of these like mirrors is exactly how i feel about society in its current state it's an endless turmoil of imagery and concepts and knowledge and thoughts and a shut out of all carnal desires those exploding grecian um like statues and all the art getting ripped apart by the vortex people is also really like every image of this movie lends itself to such a crystalline understanding of what's happening right now absolutely yeah i i love the kaleidoscopic imagery and like the psychedelic yeah um, me too stuff in the crystal and uh, there's also an interesting connection to the Wizard of Oz. Ah, uh, yes. Which is where Zardoz comes from. And also the really cute message that, like, Zed, Sean Connery, like, learns how to read. And that's how he liberates the world is the power of reading. Oh. <laughs> reading the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, he's, like, so he gets like led to a library, like, in the middle of the wasteland that he finds. And he, like, learns to read um through a copy of the wizard of oz which is so charming and cute uh and uh yeah the power of reading is what gives him the knowledge uh possible to get into the zardoz mouth and like go defeat the vortex people and reading fiction fiction 
Frank <laughs> not L. Baum. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't fucking. It wasn't theory, girl. No, girl. He was not reading Judith Butler. <laughs> he was not reading any Judith Butler. He was reading the fucking Wizard of Oz, which I do actually believe has the power to change the universe forever. Oh, absolutely. Um, this all Judy Garland. Judy Garland <laughs> is right here with us right now. She would be in favor of the theme of this movie. She lived her life on so many pills and so much alcohol and uh, still squeezed it for all it's worth and managed to perform for those homosexuals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, Zardoz is, is great. And um, I, yeah, I, I just think it's something that people should reconsider and, um, you know, watch it and, and think about the parallels to uh contemporary society absolutely Um, like sit down with this movie and think about it and then most importantly of all is like open your heart to it and uh, abandon irony and like feel it sincerely because if you take it at the level it presents itself to you in that last 15 minute sequence when mortality is resort uh, is restored to the people the vortex and then they all get ecstatically killed and raped by the brutals and are like in ecstasy as they like drown themselves and they get shot and kill each other i mean i found that to be one of the most like touching things in the world before it turns into zed as played by sean connery and charlotte rampling sitting in the cave making love to each other undressed uh aging over this long montage having a child watching the child depart and then dying together beautifully and that being presented as like the thrill of naturalistic life the idea of raping apart the utopia abandoning it completely and restoring yourself to natural urges is like no one could ever say it again like oh god it's so exciting to me yeah, absolutely. I I really liked it. I really liked it. And um Yep, it's not it's not camp. It's real. It's real. Well, we've been through a lot today, Vera. This has been a, a long conversation uh, that really has compressed a lot of my thoughts about the world. I'm very grateful to have had you here to do it. And um when I was doing my season three finale last year, I remember writing a line that was like, the reformulation of the world isn't going to be easy. It might not be worth it, um, but we're too down, far down this path now. I have to do what I set out to do. So what do we take from our new understanding of utopia into the world I am bound to create? I think that we have learned that attempts to stifle natural human impulses, to stifle sexuality, to stifle creativity, to control, to regiment, to schedule, to supervise, um, don't really lead to utopia as heaven on earth. And at this point, after years of, you know, social engineering and what we've landed at with the political stagnation, I think the answer is honestly to um, just look inward <laughs> and uh, reject um, the swampy gloop. Reject the gloop um, and 
look so deep into yourself and the immediate like physical corporeal world that you can feel in your own hands and can feel in your loins that's where it all lies it's not in um you know the utopia sky island of regulating yourself and betraying yourself with concepts of patriarchy and social justice until the end of time it's not catholic rule making it's like really all in the flesh isn't it absolutely reject victimhood and be like that <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>